Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Are hands just full of threads? What is the dragon affair? Will we ever learn more about this mysterious gray wizard? Personally, I'm more interested in whether the Empire ever hears more about this mysterious orc with a name. Note, those meddling heroes keep surviving getting thrown off cliffs. Must build taller ones in anticipation of the next encounter. Extract from the Journal of Dread Emperor Malignant II. Before we get into the substance of this chapter, I just want to note that the Dread Emperor wants to build taller cliffs, which traditionally I don't believe are built. And I assume the only ways to do this are through wicked magecraft or through judicious application of slave labor. And either way, on brand. That's praise, baby. Speaking of praise, baby, in this story, in this chapter, we see Hakram get a new magical prosthesis, a bone hand, a dead one, if you will, uh, leading to his later nickname that comes up for the first time in this chapter, Hakram, the guy who has a hand made out of bone. Mm-hmm. We see the Callowin deserters. Oh, did I mention there are new Callowin deserters? That's just how the 15th works. Surprise. We see them We see them dealt with in... Well, we see them sentenced to death in a funky way, you'll see. And then we have a meeting with Black uh, by Zoom. It's mid-pandemic still, I think. This uh, was written yeah. in the 2020s. No, 2016. Yeah, huh. that's that's early 2020s. So, Hakram gets a nifty little skeleton hand. Uh, lock tomb spoilers, everyone. Skip ahead 10 seconds if you don't want them. But EE is very clearly just ripping off what Harrow did to Ianthi in Harrow the Ninth. Yeah, that's true. It Classic EE to rip off a book that's written four years after this is published. I mean... For all of his blatant theft and unoriginality, he's certainly forward-looking in -hmm. his theft and unoriginality. Sure, sure. As soon as he took a lot from PGTE fanfiction, like characters and places. (laughs) Oh boy, we're starting to get real nasty with it, huh? Well, I had a dumb goof and had to continue. I respect that. That said, the bone hand is, first of all, Hakram's own bones. I'm not sure I had this fully realized at the time i just imagined you know they took some bones put them on his hand they have bones lying around but the first sentence after the opening sentence it makes sense because there's a paragraph break reads the naked bones were just as dexterous as when they'd been hidden under my adjutant's flesh and muscle magnificent cool Mm -hmm. but it's powered by magic cool fine and the threads of magic are something that catherine can feel Specifically, how they dug into his body and used his soul as fuel to maintain the enchantment. Ah, 
connected to a soul? Okay, sure. The soul is an animating life force. The hand is animate. Whatever. No, soul is fuel, not governor. Well, I mean, if we know, if we learn anything from uh, an organization we start to delve into a little bit next chapter, it's that souls make great fuel, actually. Is gasoline just dinosaur uh, souls? Uh, yeah, I think we've kind of cracked it open. Wonderful. Uh, paleontologists, please write in angrily about how it's actually algae or whatever. Your rage fuels the algorithm. Truly. Catherine notes that she's fairly sure she could tie her own threads to puppet the bones if she tried, which meant any decent necromancer could likely do the same. And we don't see this happen, do we? Not as far as I recall. I guess it's a good thing that in the course of the entire series, they never go up against any necromancer of any talent. No, hold on. They don't go up against decent necromancers. They go up against some of the best who ever lived. Which, actually... I could believe. I All, No, not in this case, but the concept as a whole. I really think it boils down to, especially when it comes to Nessie, that this one, Hakram is probably well beneath his notice when it comes to individually puppeting one part of his body for a slight advantage in combat. Like, I don't know that that's really the scale that the Dead King operates on. But it very well also could be simply that this is uh, a breakthrough in modern uh, necromantic prosthesis, if I recall correctly, what uh, Warlock said at the end of last chapter. It's, you know, a new advancement. And Nessie is somebody who is living in a rut that he himself created a very long time ago. And so while he is at the forefront of necromantic power, his ability to adapt to changes within the field may be limited uh, as far as being able to quickly react. I'm sure given time, he could do anything, obviously. But when there's a bleeding edge, this is a few years old piece of necromancy, He it may not dawn on him to interact with it or interface with it in a specific way because, again, he's using powers that he created forever ago and is most powerful when he's driving in that rut when he's not branching out because that's how weight of narrative works not to mention that for hakram that's two names later and being named blah 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 yeah that's fair however even if we can excuse neshima himself the fact that there are so many others that they go up against who never do anything of the sort adds fuel to the idea that Catherine really has a necromantic talent that she so rarely engages in. And I think that's nifty. Yeah, and that very well could be because it's not part of her vibe. It's a a skill she has, but maybe leaning into that too much would shift her role more than she wants to have happen. It's it's just not who she is as a person, and so she doesn't want her power sets to, to lean towards necromancy more than it is at its base level. You know, I, I can see her being concerned about the narrative turning her into a full necromancer. But it's true that people usually don't want to, you know, deal such death and destruction on or instead of their home turf, if you will. This is a sloppy segue. No, this is one of the best segues I've ever heard. Um, Kat is sort of running through how the uh, rebellion is progressing, uh, and she mentions internally during this monologue uh, that the Countess Marchford had intensified skirmishes all over the front and that she was sending packs of barely armed peasant conscripts to burn the fields. Uh, You know, tried and true military strategy of uh, salting the earth, of going scorched earth ahead of an enemy to starve them is, it's a, you know, it's been used. It's effective. However, it is interesting to be using peasant conscripts to be doing this since peasant conscripts are probably to some extent the people who not too long ago were working those very fields there's some desperation going on here there's there's this this reads to me like there is more than just this is the best way to win a war there's there's either some forced work going on which i mean conscripts or some extended like extreme desperation from these farmers these peasants who are doing what they think they need to do to protect the idea of callow and not the callowins i think 
burning food hurts everybody, not just the invaders. Citation needed. I don't think there's any part in this series where burning fields ever leads to mm-hmm. just so much devastation sure. for everyone. Yeah. It, it yeah. couldn't be bad. So I mentioned there were Callowin deserters. Mm-hmm. And 20% of the Callowin troops in the army attempted to flee during the incident last chapter last few chapters sure. but of those who tried to flee Catherine tells us the overwhelming majority of the deserters had been gallows recruits criminals given a choice between the noose and five years of service in the legions and don't know what exactly these people did what they're in for blah 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 but the thing is hey work in the army or die is a a choice made under duress and well, five years of service in the legions or supporting an insurrection, you got to make your own calculations there. Perhaps the insurrection promises something that is, in a lot of fundamental ways, a truer freedom than serving in the legions and whatever life would be given to you afterwards, which I assume would probably be more legion service or just a life of relative displacement, at least if your origins are known. And that's, People do get to change their names when they join the Legion. Maybe it is a whole new life thing. It, I mean, yeah, a whole new life, but then your entire history is was in the Legions, which doesn't benefit you much in Callow, I would imagine. Uh, and, you know, adding into that complication is, I'm sure, at least a significant, at least some percentage of these uh, Gallows recruits were, or are, at least nominally loyal to the idea of Callow. They're Callowans, even if they may not be as patriotic as Billiam. Um, if given the choice of freedom where I'm fighting for the legions or freedom where I'm fighting for Callow, eh, the needle might move a little towards Callow just from birth. And Callowan stubbornness. And Callowan stubbornness, of course. Even if it were a worse life promise, they still might go for it because Callowan... Right. It's it's hard to say. And plus, this is uh, uh, quite a few people, a full fifth of the Callowans in the 15th. Uh, the reasons for each of them to be doing this, to be deserting, the number of reasons will approximately equal the number of soldiers that deserted. You know, there's, there's going to be the whole range of things from, I don't like my officers, to I'm actually loyal to Callow and thought this was the only chance I would have to maybe, you know, there could be people in here who are doing what Cat did and trying to rise up the legions and make a difference. There's a, a, a number of reasons equal to the number of people, because that's how people work. Their choice was death or service in the legions, and they've just belatedly turned down service in the legions. Does that mean the alternative left to them is death? Because that seems like a neat solution. Officially, yeah. Uh, the thing that Kat's worrying through is how to handle this. She's got, you know, still 80% of her Callowans to figure out what to do about, uh, or to set an example for, and she's got uh, a legion that is very new to unify, to form into a cohesive whole. She needs to establish her leadership. She's got a lot going on. It's not as simple as just execute the deserters and move on for her. Uh, in fact, Juniper thinks it is. She says to crucify all of them and put them on the ramparts at Summerhome. Uh, and Kat says that wouldn't solve anything. And I don't really believe much in punitive justice. I don't believe in punishment as a means of of accomplishing things. When it comes to actually, yeah, when it comes to actually affecting how people view things. However, in this circumstance where you have hundreds of people held under duress who you are asking to do dangerous, hard work at the threat of death, I think proving that you're willing to follow through on that threat of death would probably solve some of your issues. Like, not not to be a huge punitive justice uh, stand here, but if you executed these people and put them on crosses up on the ramparts and the other Callowans in your legion saw them, they would think, wow, she will kill me if I desert. <laughs> it's right there. Will that be good for morale? Absolutely not. Will that be, will that lead to better soldiers? Probably not. Would it lead to fewer desertions? Uh, maybe. I find it hard to disagree, but also I'm just curious. Historically speaking, if, probably not in the Roman Empire, but at some point maybe you researched uh, crucifixion itself. 
But um, how's that as a way to die? Is it particularly oh, it's, enjoyable? It, it's uh, it's a pretty rough one. Uh, basically, anybody who has been to uh, a modern Christian church in America has heard about how horrible it, how horrible it is because the last decade or so modern churches have loved to talk about how awful crucifixion is in great detail uh it's a rough one it's a mix of i don't know extreme pain and suffocation and your body sort of just giving out and exposure you know all great ways to die individually but you just combine them all together throw in a little humiliation of course well yeah but i mean that's just the human condition not unfair that said Catherine is a coward for not doing it. Uh, she likes to pretend it's not cowardice, but she is saying that the deserters are cowards. And I think that she is a little blind. Uh, she's, she's a little blind to what's going on here because of her particular position. She has a lot of individual power. She has a lot of, I mean, frankly, nepotism. It, it's she's named and she has a, particular viewpoint on the relationship between Prace and Callow that's not exactly shared by everybody or the way to shift that relationship at least. And she is now saying that the cowardice of these deserters is revolting, regardless of the circumstances of their enrollment. And just to walk through the chain of events, these two these these people were offered fight and probably die, or be executed and definitely die. And they tried to choose neither. And cats surprised by this and disgusted by this, they're choosing to try not. They're, try, they're choosing the option that they feel has the lowest likelihood of them being killed. I think that's a normal thing to do. <laughs> I don't know that cowardice factors in when they had no choice in the first place, when they were forcibly enlisted at the uh, pain of death. Power dynamics really uh, disqualify agency, don't they? Yeah, uh, I mean, if your options are do a thing or die, barring extreme extremely firmly held principles that's not really an option for most people it's an illusion of choice and cat is ignoring that and saying that it's disgusting that they would choose not to die here very cool cat but there is somebody involved in this whole situation who is actually unironically very cool cat is going to speak to these uh prisoners these deserters uh and she to do so, she gets a little stage that is a wooden crate that Hockram had installed in anticipation of this speech. But the question here is sort of when? Hockram is with Kat. He is with her during the walk here. He's with her in the planning of this. He's been, you know, her advisor because he's her adjutant. And yet he found time to get a little stage for Kat. I, I just, it's such a minor thing, but it's very on brand for him. And, it, you know, it's, it's again... We're going to make this comparison a lot because the text strongly invites you to, but it's very scribe-esque to, oh yeah, don't worry, the stage is taken care of off-screen, and not just off-screen for us, but off-screen for Cat and Hawkram somehow. Would the adjective for other relating to scribe just be scriptural? I don't like it, so probably yeah. As they advance to this, I'm going to call it a soapbox. As they advance to the soapbox, <laughs> okay. they ignore the whispers of dead hand, dead hand, dead hand that spread when Hakram was recognized. And I recognize your recent amputee slash magical prosthesis test subject. I recognize, you know, there's a lot going on, but also you're manifesting a name and you just got a whole thing. You're, you, you've got a brand revel in this. This is, this is helping you along. This is, your tragedy, your loss is real and blah, blah, blah. But this is one of the best things that could have happened. This reaction to it. I'm, you're I'm saying, sure having a hand was nice. You're saying Cat should be giving Hawkram lessons in clenching. He should be flexing this hand constantly to really make it stand out everywhere he goes. Make it stand out and also build up those muscles. I mean, take a look at that hand. Ooh. Muscles atrophied. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. So Cat gets up on the box says silence, and everyone gets quiet. And then she resists the urge to clear her throat. Black's lesson on pitching her voice so that it could carry far without being a yell, says Catherine, had seemed an affectation at the time, but I was glad of them now. Um, why? Why would that seem like an affectation? Even if you weren't going to be in the military, which was your whole goal and 
the whole thing that everyone was agreeing to from the beginning. But even if that weren't your choice, as a named, you're going to address a crowd at some point. And every public speaker, every actor, every presentational person needs to learn the pretty simple trick of speaking loudly and clearly without screaming. Why would that be an affectation? Also, you can look at it from another angle. All public speaking is to some extent an affectation because it's different than your normal speech, presumably. And that's fine and normal and intentional. And everybody knows that. And it's not like some, you don't dismiss it because it's that. It's how you present. It's fine. Oh, their presentational style just really didn't sound authentic. It wasn't like they were having a conversation with me personally. Yeah, right. It's like when people try to dismiss something as a phase. Sure, it's a phase. Life is transitional. Mm -hmm. Grow up. If somebody is speaking on stage without a microphone, they're talking loudly. You're not going to say, well, if I was talking to them in a small room, they wouldn't be talking loudly. Therefore, it's fake. you, You adjust your speech pattern based on your audience. That is how communication works. Also, if you have a microphone, you still need to actually speak unless you're you know, particularly trained in elocution, you have to speak unusually clearly and preferably loudly anyway, simply so it can pick you up best because all microphones distort. Grow up, Catherine. So really what we're saying is Kat needs to learn how to talk into a microphone. Yes, which I don't think we see her practice once in the entire series. That's what I'm saying. Uh, get it together, Kat. She's such an imposter, if you ask her. Mm-hmm. She says... It felt strange standing in front of over 200 people decked out in plate and wreathed in the dark cloak my teacher had gifted me. I felt like a fake, like the fact that I'd been so often making it up as I went along should have been obvious to everyone. But my gaze swept over the prisoners and I saw only fear on their faces. One, you are the vessel by which life and death are doled out. I don't care what affectations and what costumes you're putting on, you're going to be taken seriously. Yep. But secondly, I, I like this. She, she feels like a fake. And the first words she says, which occur actually right before this sentence, are given in the passive voice, thereby appealing to some outside authority rather than her own authority. She says, military tribunals were convened last night and sentences have been given. She appeals to military tribunals. She appeals to the authority of authority itself rather than i convened military tribunals and have delivered my sentence or what have you have passed my sentence have indicted you on charges of i don't know but that's cool we see her discomfort in the way she speaks it's not just some kind of detached formal speech no it's protection for herself from being held accountable for not the horrors she's judging upon them, but rather, you know, she's just trying to squirm out from being called out for not being able to do this because she's just a girl in life is a nightmare. And it's interesting because while she's talking about that, she even goes on to say uh, what the sentences are, still passive, but when she transitions into what the actual punishment will be, the punishment she decided on, she goes back to active. She personally is doing this. I own you. I uh, have done this. I am. When she's explaining where the problems are. So this is, it's not just this, uh, this sort of imposter syndrome, this appealing to an outside authority in terms as a, I don't know, as, as a confidence thing or as cat wrestling with her place in the world. It's also rhetorical. It's also her establishing I am the one who is keeping you alive right now. I am the one to whom you owe loyalty. Nobody else was standing up for you. Nobody else is willing to to give you this extra chance. Therefore, you owe me everything. It, it's a powerful tool, and she just kind of casually does it without commenting on it in the you know the internal monologue that we get. It never specifically calls that out. It's just without consciously doing it. It seems Cat just falls into this easy villainous but easy role of taking control of these people's lives these people's lives and she does it you know very well very skillfully it's, it's very cool to see though something happens in between those two phases mm-hmm. where admittedly by her own power she is nonetheless given a metaphysical reassurance of her 
power and authority. Because when she says, for desertion, low treason, and dereliction of duty while the empire is in a state of war, you have all been condemned to death, still passive, there are a few cries of dismay and some prisoners try to get up. And at that point, she speaks, sit the hells down, and my voice ring like steel. One, everything I just said. Two, huh, apparently speaking allows profane interjection. She didn't just have to deliver the order, sit down. The inclusion of the hells in the middle there? You know, she got to have a tonal indicator. That's neat. That's nifty. And it works. The deserters fall back to the ground like they've been struck. So it's reassuring in more ways than one to her. Right. It Very few things establish your authority quite like being able to speak and have people just automatically follow those commands because you have so much presence in the world. Like, they don't have a choice there. Uh, but we there's a neat little thing about speaking here. Uh, she didn't specifically say to whom she was speaking, and so when she gave this order, uh, quite a few of her legionaries who are not deserters also sat down, though because she wasn't intending to speak to them, the effect was weaker, so presumably they were able to stand back up or that they started to sit and didn't all the way. You know, there's, there's a, a little bit of vagary here on the edges. And I wonder if this is like a the people who are listening, if how much of it is if they think she's speaking to them or if it's just they heard the words and are more, by personality, more inclined to instant obedience without thought. Like, who, who is this affecting more than others? It, it's just an interesting thing that she's clearly telling these deserters to sit down and it there's like collateral damage there's other people caught in the 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 words it's really nifty how speaking works and i'd like to know more agreed but what i don't need to know more about is that catherine has just created for herself an elite fighting force people who are sentenced to death who know they're there to die who have no other hope are surely going to be the most effective fighters you can have despair has always been a motivating force, right? Sure. Uh, you know, we get this... She, Like I said, she owns these people now, and she says that this is something that's happened before with Callow, with the Forlorn Hope, uh, a unit specifically of criminals, traitors, deserters that are conscripted. Uh, and she refers to them as scum at the bottom of the barrel, armed and sent first into the grinder at every occasion. How did the Forlorn Hope survive as an entity enough that it has a history like what you've just described is a recipe for a lot of people dying quickly followed by the rest of them running away and being executed pretty much immediately why this this band doesn't seem like it would have been a a particularly effective fighting force since fighting forces in, at this scale rely on things like cohesion and discipline and willingness to stand and fight and uh I don't see much of that here. So she names this band the Forlorn Hope. Sorry, she names this company the Forlorn Hope and congratulates these deserters turned sacrificial fodder on their re-enrollment in the Legions of Terror. And I gotta say, I think this is a gross thing for the reasons you touched upon for them not being expected to be the most effective force anyway. And it's gross that it happens in real life as well, in various ways. Mm -hmm. We've all, well, many of us are surely aware of some of the various abominations of the U.S. prison industrial complex. If you're unfamiliar, read Angela Davis's extremely readable Are Prisons Obsolete? Which, spoiler alert, obviously, yes. But... <laughs> As a very short preface, it's a common misconception that slavery is illegal in the United States. No, it's thriving, and it's present in the prison system most plainly because the constitutional amendment that outlawed slavery, which was a great first step, but um, it disallowed slavery on the basis of birth, but still allows it for a punishment for a crime, penalty for a crime. and Prison labor produces a lot of products in the United States for pennies on the dollar because the laws for compensation are uh, lax. But as an even more humorous outgrowth of that nastiness, 
there have been cases where in the ever worse climatological disasters we face, particularly wildfires, prisoners have been given the opportunity to fight those fires, which is hazardous and difficult labor. And while fighting those fires is a noble task, God bless every firefighter, it's another one of those, it's not quite a full choice when you don't enjoy freedom. Freedom is a prerequisite for agency. And any limitation on freedom is a limitation on agency. And so I don't like Catherine right now. Fair. Uh, I, I mean, like it's, Catherine it's, a lot. She's the best. Sure. There. I mean, it, it's also worth noting that historically speaking, the idea of taking prisoners or slaves or any any number of uh, intentionally legally oppressed peoples and conscripting them into the military at times of emergencies or just sort of as the way that your military works like that it's not unique to the u.s by any means uh you know there it's sort of just a way that militaries have worked historically in a lot of places um and in some places that's been a bit more effective than others because there's been i don't know institutions and culture built up around a specific type of enlist like conscripted soldier in this style that allows them to be effective but it, it's all horrible and all tragic if you can use that term for something that was intentionally done uh it's definitely not just an american thing the u.s is just uh quiet about it and kind of sweeps it under the rug a lot absolutely i don't mean to imply uniqueness in the abomination i just sure. feel a duty to make everything about the sins for which I bear responsibility by birth. That's very patriotic of you. I am wounded. <laughs> um, Speaking of wounds. Yeah. While, while this whole idea is absolutely gross, like fully agreed, the line that Kat delivers in here is pretty metal. It's very, like, if you approach this as Kat's a villain, she's doing villainous things. Sometimes we love a bad guy who does bad things. Uh, she she as she's getting into the the guts of her speech as she's really reaching the the driving these points home she says lawfully you are dead men and dead women all of you the manner and time of your death is at my discretion and i intend to use you sorely before letting you go these people are dead and cat is just using them it, you know it's almost necromantic in vibe it's very villainous it's very I'm the evil overlord of this army. You are all dead, and I'm using you until I can't anymore. It's a cool line. It's just about a gross thing. I told you she was a necromancer. <laughs> uh, before we leave this topic, uh, there's a uh, we we talked about like people who are prisoners, who are slaves, who are criminals, who are being thrown back in at the front uh, as fodder more or less and how that's been historically uh common um there's sort of a uh famous example that really directly ties in with this um where so kind of infamously the romans practiced decimation for desertion which was killing uh unsurprisingly 10 percent of people uh, of a unit where there's desertion it's brutal it's roman uh, and the word an, bothers me, but I've discussed it previously on this podcast, and it's nobody's fault. Sure. Uh, there are. There was a, a time during uh, one of his big campaigns during his famous civil war where Julius Caesar had a, a unit, a legion, desert. And rather than, you know, go through the decimation, he basically shamed them and quote-unquote forgave them for their desertion and dragged them back into service mostly through rhetoric mostly through convincing them that they owed him their lives that you know they had deserted therefore they do they are owed decimation he was the one who had to enforce that but by not enforcing that he stepped in as their savior and as the person that they wanted to come back and repay their shame and their failure too. So they became a, a, a legion that was very loyal to Caesar. And so there was this, uh, this very clear parallel of showing up and saying, well, you're dead because of what you did. 
However, because I'm so generous, you can serve me personally with extreme amounts of horrifying amounts of loyalty. And that is where you will earn forgiveness, earn, earn back your honor, earn back your, your right to exist. And so there's, you know, an, an historical example that ties directly into what Kat does here that I thought was pretty neat. Yeah, but surely that doesn't work out in the end, right? Uh, like, they can't even be worthwhile legions then, right? Uh, I mean, Caesar did end up dying eventually, so really they did fail fully. You know, after... And given the people he was working with, I bet it was some kind of betrayal, wasn't it? Classic. I mean, what else would you expect from Romans, right? I expect a lot from Romans. But <laughs> mostly, mostly bridges and roads. And wild parties. <laughs> the, uh... Cat follows up this whole thing with uh, with these deserters, this whole situation with these deserters by being a little weird. Uh, Hakram offers a hand to help her down from the crate, and she says that it was the live hand because she wasn't touching the other one without a good reason. I gotta say, that's a little rude. He lost his hand fighting alongside you and protecting you and being your, sorry about the term, right-hand man. And you're just not going to interact with his prosthesis out of, what, feeling gross? Come on, Cap. That's Catherine Foundling for you. It truly is. So, remind me what happened in the last arc. Catherine comes to the city, and what does she personally do here? Uh, yells at the governor, lies to the governor, or not the governor, the uh, leader of the legions who's kind of functioning as governor, and then gets in a big fight that destroys a bunch of the city. No, you're not phrasing this in a way that benefits my point. Oh, okay. Well, next time I ask you, tell me how she saves the general and the city. Oh, uh, sorry. In the last arc, what did Catherine do? Uh, heroically, lowercase h, saves uh, Afalabi and the entire city from destruction at the hand of the wicked heroes. Everything anyone could be expected to do. Right. And after pronouncing judgment, Hakram tells her that they have to hurry if they don't want to be late. We find out she's got her meeting with Black set up. And she says, time to face some music, huh? She just fought off a band of named in a city that shouldn't have been so troubled. She showed up Afalabi. She might have saved Wakesa's life. Yeah, time to face the music, Catherine. I bet you're going to be berated to no end. Which I do want to point out, doesn't begin to happen. She's just going through this imposter syndrome right now, coward. Yeah, that's fair. In fact, if you experience imposter syndrome, it's a moral failing of your own. And you should feel like you don't belong where you are if you feel that way. Also, are you actually feeling the imposter syndrome? Only, I mean, it, it's very rare that somebody's actually experiencing that. And probably you actually are just bad. I know I am. There it is. So they meet up with Warlock. They they go to the bath. Not to bathe. It's just for scrying. Right. They need a lot of water for a big scry. Um and uh, as part of setting up for this scrying, Warlock is here, and he's uh, using this opportunity to teach uh, our good friend the Apprentice a little bit. Um, it's sort of this report to Black that he turns into a lesson for his son, as Cat phrases it. Um, and it, it's it's fun because aside from the places where it extremely isn't this, the calamity woe relationship is often explicitly and directly familial but also just in vibe familial it's it's the older generation they've got lessons you've got black and cat you've got uh you've got warlock and uh and uh uh masego uh you know you've got even to an extent ranger and archer calling that a family is definitely a stretch an orphan and the wicked older woman who abuses her Right, exactly. The it's fun whenever the the relationship between members of the woe and members of the calamities uh, gets analyzed, gets looked at a little bit, and we get, we get to see the inner workings of it. Because obviously, the parent and child relationships are there, but it's just fun because they are these big villainous bands with so much power and so much influence in the world, and then sometimes they just are giving little lessons and you know just being a dad. It's fun. You know what else is fun? What else is fun? In the words of the sea witch from The Little Mermaid, body language, huh? Because Hakram is uneasy at this meeting. He's never encountered Black. He's He is the least qualified person to be there. He's not actually named yet. He's of the lowest rank by a margin. And his unease is visible on his face. 
but orcish facial expressions are different than human facial expressions. And I love this. In his case, he was showing the lower part of his fangs without going up to the tips, which was a sign of agitation, apparently. Oh, they're, even humans have some expressions, some gestures that are culturally dependent. So with a different species, of course. Let the teeth boys teeth. Let the teeth boys tooth. I'm going with that one. Yeah, they, they tooth. I mean, Hawkrim can tooth me any day. Uh-huh. Uh, and Kat, it's it's nice because Kat recognizes this. She, prior to her time in the Legions, orcs were basically monsters to her. Um, partially because they were Legions exclusively, or mostly because they were Legions exclusively. But, you know, she's she understands how the people close to her work. And you know, she learns about orcs because there are orcs who are her friends and her subordinates and you know good job cat don't it's it's not and hawker makes a weird face with his teeth orcs are weird this is just her explaining how her friend is uneasy uh cat is then asking warlock about how he's setting up the scrying he's using candles instead of rocks and there's concern about uh sympathies how does this yada 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 and warlock rather than explaining anything says do you have a few days for me to grant you a layman's understanding of metaphysical sympathetic effects now okay admittedly it's probably a pretty complicated topic but famous smart guy albert once said that if you can't explain it to a six-year-old you don't understand it yourself i don't know how much that applies to magic in the, the guide verse here but you're telling me he can't give a simple fire works in place of the rocks or I know black well enough that this works anyway, or, you know, there's, there's no level at which he can explain how this works other than it would take days for your, for you to even have a layman's understanding of what I'm doing right now. It's such a, this moment makes me maybe understand why Kat doesn't like Warlock very much. (laughs) I will have more to say about Warlock's disinclination towards teaching next chapter, but I'm going to propose that he is perhaps overcorrecting in this case for the for the blurry perception that experts are said to have in XKCD comic strip 2501 where those of you familiar with XKCD will surely remember just from the number alone a character says to another silicate chemistry is second nature to us geochemists so it's easy to forget that the average person probably only knows the formulas for olivine and one or two feldspars and warlock rather than try to explain, just says, well, you don't know anything. I know that. I'm not even going to try. Which is an act of intellectual cowardice, but I would not say it to his ridiculously handsome face. (laughs) Sure. Catherine says she does not have the time, and Wakesa says, then take my word for it. The still ridiculously handsome older man replied, yeah, I didn't pull that out of nowhere. It was in the text. Even Catherine admits it. Wow. Look at you. That was a great poll. From, let's see... Uh, one, two, three, four, five. About eight words after the thing we were just talking about. Well, what can I say? I'm something of an academic. Not a. Uh, is there some kind of word for common low people? The apprentice, uh, in trying to, I don't know, fend off his father's fatherliness, uh, says, uh, "Sorcery without understanding is a sword without a handle," uh, which is apparently something that. Uh, the warlock has said before and so naturally z's says you wouldn't be caught dead using a sword warlock thinks that's horrifying he looks aghast at the idea only to answer your question plebs kill with their own hands first of all this guy is just using the term plebs which is phenomenal i love him and second of all he says this but it's worth keeping in mind that at this point it hasn't happened yet but despite his father saying this there's a pretty important scene later on in this series where Z's kills not with his own hands, but with his own teeth at one point. So I don't know. I, you know, they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but in this case, the apple falls onto a sparrow. Okay, but killing with his teeth, it can't have been a big deal then. You can't kill anything important with your teeth. Uh-huh. We'll be vague though, so there's no spoilers. Okay. Uh, yes, the Z's is the. Uh, Definitely intentionally just throwing this back at his father. It's his rebellious phase when he kills the settings big bad with his mouth. Oh, 
we'll get to more on why he's rebelling against his father next chapter. Oh, However, yeah. this chapter, we're going to talk about alcoholism. Briefly. Uh, when they get a hold of Black, he's drinking some wine, and Cat <laughs> says that pricey drinking habits are downright unwholesome. I love every time Cat sees somebody drinking and is upset with them early in the in the books. Knowing what we know about Cat, these early chapters where she's ah, drinking before noon, uh, your second cup of wine with a meal. What's going on? Like this is horrifying. And later on, she's like, "What? I'm not that drunk. I've only had three flagons so far." You know, it's <laughs> we get a very different Cat after she's I don't know undergone some horrifying levels of trauma. Speaking of horrifying trauma, Warlock nearly died. Well, oh, but, but just, just for the point I'm making, let us <laughs> sure. And the very first thing Black says as he appears on the Zoom call is, "I can't believe you fell for that goblin fire trick, Wakesa. We were the exact same one to flush out the Gray Wizard. I love it. Your best friend almost died. Was on the very brink of death, right on the verge." He was bleeding out for a while, and you just laugh at him when you show up. That's friendship. What doesn't kill you makes your friends laugh at you. It's a, you know, that's how it works. There is a German saying that roughly translates to, whoever has the injury need not look for mockery. Implying, of course, that it's abundant without searching for it. And I just like that. Speaking of good sayings, however, they spar back and forth very briefly. And Warlock mentions that he's not the one who toppled Stygia's government while, quote, drunk as a lord. That's a good saying. Also, Black, do you think he might have a problem? Catherine could be right. A problem? Or he's just too cool to be sober. It is a very cool thing to have a debilitating health issue that you cultivate for for the story of it, actually. And that's definitely okay, why Catherine. Black is doing it, yeah. Uh, but it, it, talking about this sort of reference to calamity well i was gonna say calamities past and uh meaning incidents rather than the people since it's none of them have died and none of them will um there's a moment where cat is like taken aback by this story and but decides to put it off till later and she says while i'd like to <clears throat> while i'd like to revisit why the empire would be meddling in one of the free city's internal affairs at some point in the future i think there might be more pressing matters at hand oh cat the the naivete here is so adorable. Why would the Empire be meddling in a foreign government's internal policies? What's going on? This is we should di dig into that. Cat Militia's doing that to every foreign government. That's who she is and what she does. That's why she is as successful as she is. That's her whole thing. Her whole thing is really just killing the mood. Sorry, oh. Catherine's whole thing on the other hand, it's just killing the mood. The friends are chatting. Catherine says, I think there might be more pressing matters at hand. And just like that, all traces of amusement slid off the two men's faces. I'd seen it happen to my teacher before, but wouldn't it seem the same on a man as amiable as Warlock was a little unsettling? These are professionals. And what they're professionals at is being monsters. Mm -hmm. And I want them to be my friends, and I love them. It would be cool to have friends like them, because uh, Black doesn't greet... Z's directly, and Z's is a little upset, <laughs> and Black's response is, don't be a brat. The greeting was implied. I don't know exactly how one uh, implies a greeting, but it seems like a pretty nice skill to have. You also have to appreciate the familial relationship here, because he just called somebody's kid a brat in front of him. I, and Not just in front of him, but in front of, let's see here, Basically a random legionary. Hawkram's in the room. A random legionary. He turns to Hawkram and says, Hawkram Deadhand. Catchy that. If the story spreads, it will accelerate your growth into your name. Okay, so a random named. Sorry. You're right, this is Black. <laughs> he deals with a few random named a year. But he deals with them effectively, just like Catherine hopefully will. She notes that they have the hunter. He survived the wounds only barely, and he's been kept in an enchanted sleep ever since. And I gotta say, that is impressive. Most people give up when their torso is plural. Uh, uh, this is, that, that's just a feat. Good job, Hunter. It does. I can't wait to see what you're doing for the rest of the long story that you make mm -hmm. it through. It, there's also the question of like 
why why is he alive? It it seems like they reference this next chapter especially, but it does seem like keeping a live hero prisoner is a bad idea for I don't know every reason. Yeah, but isn't he like a foster nephew in law? Yeah, uh, let me go down the tree. Yes, that's how the family tree works out. Uh, turns out Hunter is from refuge. Foster's stepson in law? Step foster son in law? Step unwanted foster son in law? Step foster son who was more or less kicked out of the family by his step. No, hmm. Listen, the relationship there is tenuous at best, is what we're saying. <laughs> and I blame Ranger. I mean, fair. She doesn't care. Cat uh, is, like, flabbergasted by this. Wait, uh, Hunter's from Refuge. Isn't that Ranger's territory? Uh, she's concerned about a member of the Calamities being involved in this. But first, in leading up to that, the Black Knight says that Militia will insist on diplomatic sanctions uh, against Refuge. Uh, if Black is correct, then that means Elia is attempting diplomatic sanctions against basically in practice the person of ranger and the her hangers on does she expect that will accomplish anything beneficial i see a couple options either ranger doesn't care as you know refuge is weakened or she does care and now ranger's mad at you neither of those are good outcomes they're neutral or bad outcomes do you think ranger could penetrate the tower Ha. Probably the most secure place on the continent outside of the Crown of the Dead. Uh-huh. To be fair, she does have more practice infiltrating the Crown of the Dead. Uh, they're cuties. <laughs> um, and then Catherine just breaks in. I'm sorry, did I miss something here? Because the implication seems to be that a fairly notorious villain was a hero's teacher. And it's like, cats, oh boy, do you not get it at all. All this is a thing Warlock should say. Do you have a few days for me to go through? It you're absolutely right for on a reread. However, this kind of thing is phenomenal when you're first coming into the story because there are a lot of nuances here. There are a lot of layers, personal loyalties. Next chapter, we really dig into the calamities and how, where their loyalties actually align. Um, but it's cool to start seeing pieces of that. And you know, by the end, we got a pretty good picture. But these little peeks behind the curtains of who the Calamities are and what it is they actually want and who it is they actually want are great. And it's, you know, great storytelling and character development, finding out, oh, wait, but Ranger's a villain and she's teaching a hero and uh, calling her a villain is something of a stretch. A lot of the Calamities aren't made up exclusively of people who serve the gods below. And, and you know, it, it's, it's great. It's really good stuff. Whom does Ranger serve? Uh, mostly herself? The concept of the hunt, maybe? No, I think that's Catherine Slater entourage. Oh, yeah. Uh, but there's it's a... a the Whoa, just the hunt people. Right. There, there's a bit of a, a some tension revealed, too, in the Calamities here. Uh, Black says it's a complicated issue, talking about Ranger's allegiances, and Warlock smirks and says, you can say that again. And Black is not pleased. His eyes turn cold for a heartbeat. And he simply says, glass houses, Wakesa. And the subject changes. There's no friendly banter. There's no, oh, yeah, you're right. We've had this conversation before. There is Warlock looking abashed. And then the subject changes and they move on. Uh, there's some there's some underlying stuff going on here. And there's just a flash of it. And yet for all that, I think a devil is a much more trustworthy partner than Ranger. Yeah. First of all. Warlock and his spouse have a prenup. <laughs> okay, I suppose. So, um, I don't mean to make a cruel joke before a point, but Catherine finds out she needs to bring the hunter with her for a while until they reconvene. And she says it seems like a recipe for heroic rescue. And Masego disagrees, saying, The swordsman lost. You'll have free hand for at least a month. And he did that right in front of Hakram, and that's just... Honestly... But my point here is actually, Masego's learned. He knows that there's a pattern to these things. The lone swordsman could not possibly mount a rescue. Would not possibly. Should not. There is no potential here because that's how the story goes. Yeah, it, it, doesn't know that yet. 
Catherine doesn't know that yet, and I do wonder if what would happen if this lone swordsman did push this early. If he realized he was falling into a pattern and decided to immediately launch the rescue, would that mean that the rescue would fail? Would it never get off the ground? Would the bard talk him out of it? There's, you know, it's one of those things where most of the time, the way that stories manifest in conflict is, as we've discussed before, slight nudges at key points. What's the slight nudge that prevents the swordsman from rescuing his companion before this frankly arbitrary time limit is up? I mean, do, do, do you not know? I guess I don't. It's a lone swordsman. It's just a bout of ennui. Yeah, that's fair. He's, he's really busy pensively staring out over the farmlands of Callow as they burn. So speaking of not thinking about your audience, uh, yep. then Warlock does it next. He says, I might have been a little heavy-handed when referring to the Jorah, but Necrom's right there. Anyway, he says, I forget how fragile people without names can be. I and, 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 and I just want to know, this might be someone without a name, but uh, she's not just mundane either. Oop. Well, I mean, we don't know that for sure. And Black immediately says, oh, is she from the watch? So, yeah, they're uh, talking about a procedure, which we learn a bit more next chapter about what that looks like. We'll have a lot to say on it. Um, And then the mages take their leave so that, to quote the warlock, the unwashed masses can discuss their business. Warlock is obviously at the tippy top of any kind of hierarchy you want to construct, personal power, political power, if you wanted it, governmental power, legal strength, whatever you want to do here. But still, calling Black and his squire, and also Hawkram, the unwashed masses, little rude. Also funny, because as The Apprentice points out, they're in a bathhouse. Oh, and and so, so they're unwashed. Yeah. So they... Pass through a ward Catherine couldn't detect. They pass through a ward Catherine hadn't detected, couldn't detect, even knowing what was there. And she tells us, I knew there were a few mages of Warlock's caliber out there, but there were some. A liability to look into when I next found the time. Here's the thing, Catherine. No, you you can't do anything about that other than growing in power. The way you deal with mages of that caliber is by hiring one into the woe and then rivals to lovers slow burn another that's how you do it you you you, you cannot deal with warlock magically you yeah. never will be able to well okay magically yeah never there will come a time where i would uh i would put even odds on if the story were in any way in her favor cat do faring pretty well against the warlock yes not magically no uh and speaking of warlock's intense expertise Black announces to Hawkram and Cat uh, that Warlock has the uh, professional opinion that Hawkram is less than a month away from coming into his name. And I have to say, the specificity there is wild. He can say, wow, there's a story developing here, and it will be developed within 30 days. That, what is it that Warlock, I, I don't know, there's so much going on here that I, what is Warlock looking at that gives him a specific timeline on the development of a nascent story of a nascent name it's very weird it's very cool i, I don't know i don't there's just a lot going on there hakram <laughs> doesn't even blink in the face of that he just barrels through to the point there's going to be pushback from the more conservative elements in the empire bold not just a bold assertion though he's right but this is black this is the liberator and elevator this is the greatest hero orc kind has for now. If, if they ever get a new warlord, maybe he'll be pretty cool. <laughs> but he just gives his analysis to Amadeus, and he's right. I mean, to be fair, part of Hawkram's burgeoning name is giving direct and clear statements of advice slash opinion to his direct superior. Maybe he's just particularly good at this and knows it. That's fair. Also, speaking of fair things, assassins are going to be coming after him, surely, obviously. And Catherine's upset that they'd try this in the middle of a war, but Black says that the nobility sees the outcome of the rebellion as a foregone conclusion. And you know what? Yeah, there's there's not 
enough going on there to make the rebellion actually chug forward. Even in a game of heroes and such, come on. They've got Black on their side, even if he's their enemy. For sure. Um, One thing to mention here, because it's going to be important next chapter and going forward a bit, uh, Cat calls what's going on right now a war. You try to assassinate an officer in the middle of a war. Black doesn't. He calls it just the rebellion. Uh, He doesn't say... You know, during this conversation, while there's a war going on, or you know, he even refers to what Cat's doing as this campaign. Um, so, I have to assume that Black is being pretty intentional about that, and uh, I, it kind of comes up in a number of discussions going forward. So, just just to note that. That's very interesting, and I wonder if it's a face he's presenting to the gods in order to influence what the story can be, because you can lose a war, mm-hmm. but. A rebellion? That's a little different. You can't lose a rebellion. Look at Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. Black has seen Star Wars, so he knows. Wait. But but uh, unlike wars uh, or rebellions, climbing from the potential for a name to possessing a name in full is far from a foregone conclusion. It is quite the Star Trek, isn't it? Wow. Uh, and... Hakram is about to be the first orc with a name in forever and ever, but he's an illustrious company because the last orc with the potential for a name was Grem One Eye, who is perfect. Do you think? And do you think for orcs to get names, they have to be missing half of a pair of some body part? That honestly tracks. Kinda, yeah. Actually, every name you get, you just have to cut off more of your body. It's a well, I can't really say transhumanist tale, but it's a trans orc trail tail i believe it but what really surprises me here is they just straight named that and i've either ignored the actual strength of the statement or forgot about it because during the warlord arc hakram feels grem way in the distance as a potential claimant and i was astounded that he's actually you know really in the running even if he's not putting himself in the running but we know Right here. Yeah, but I think part of that is just when you read this for the first time, the name Grem One Eye meant next to nothing, so it's hard to stick for the next. How could the name Grem One Eye mean next to nothing? This is Grem One Eye. <laughs> right. Well, just to say, I agree. Yeah. Cat uh, is concerned about the assassins, uh, and Black is giving a little bit of information. And then he says that Militia is already suppressing the rumors uh, about Hakram in place and she's put the information under the seal of the tower and that these are only these are stopgap measures they won't work forever i i guess my question is where are these rumors coming from hawkram fought alongside some named he had a conversation in a room that contained himself catherine the apprentice and the warlock and then this conversation and these things are a couple of days apart at most we're not i don't think the timeline is perfectly clear where are the rumors in the in price coming from how are they widespread enough that they need to be suppressed who is who is spreading these rumors where who got the idea that hockham is beca- is coming into a name he was nobody when he left price like not even just saying ah oh, he didn't have a name yet he was just a guy uh, i don't know i don't know i wonder where these who, who's who's talking and where did they get their information? That's a very good question, and I do not have any answer cool. at all. So you were against crucifying just straight up every Callowin, right? Yes, and I, I'll stand by that. Okay. Well, how about this? Catherine wants to make them stop sending assassins to kill Hakram, which they haven't done yet, but they're gonna. And Black lets her know there is a way to stop them. All she has to do is, quote, kill them. Brutally, publicly, and repeatedly. Eventually, they'll decide that assassination isn't a feasible way to remove him from the board and turn to other means. Refreshingly direct. Um, what do you think? If you had to crucify every Callowin or kill every assassin, which would you prefer happen? This is a weird dichotomy to be setting up. It's the only choice. The only choice is kill every assassin that comes from my friend or kill every Callowin? Yep. Uh... I guess the assassins. <laughs> you know what? Catherine made the same choice, and she's a villain. So. Oh no. 
What does that say about me? You're slipping down the slope already. It is a slippery slope. And um, you know what else keeps slipping, slipping, slipping into the future? I'd love for you to fill me in. I'd like to, but that's all the time we have today. It is. We are we are at an end of this episode. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss... One and a half orcs. Two threats. And three political-philosophical viewpoints. For what purpose? <laughs> Wade in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata as a practical guide to evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Enter music for this episode with Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph with Silent Cliff by Serge Pavkin Music. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is The Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixaway.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at the Long Price. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash pgtee. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, and access at least one Patreon-exclusive tangent. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and liege, always a claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, our patron and mentor, the traveling teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, chapter 12, Reproval. <laughs>